You are tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Bombshell announcement about the future of Red Hills underground fuel tanks. The Department of Defense uh, just held a, a news briefing addressing the future of the World War II era tank farm. It will be shut down. HPR's news director, Bill Dorman, here with the latest. Catherine, as you say, sudden and really surprise announcement this morning. Defense Department permanently closing the Red Hill fuel storage facility. It came in the form of an announcement from Pentagon spokesman John Kirby as part of their regular Defense Department briefing. And so rather than describe what he said, it's short enough. I thought we could just play his entire announcement. As I say, from less than an hour ago, he starts off referring to the decision made by Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. Secretary Austin uh, decided today, and you should have the statement. If you don't, you'll have it uh, shortly, uh, uh, that directs the Secretary of the Navy in coordination with the commander of the United States Indo-Pacific Command to take all steps necessary to defuel and to permanently close the Red Hill bulk fuel storage facility in Hawaii. I know many of you are tracking the importance that leaders across the Department of Defense have placed uh, on that November leak Uh, and the contamination that resulted from it. The secretary, the deputy secretary, leaders from across the Department of Defense and Navy, as well as Indo-PACOM, remain very, very focused on this issue uh, and the impact that it's had on families and communities and, of course, our responsibilities uh, in in both national security uh, and being good stewards of our resources in the environment. Throughout this process, the department's approach has been guided by a commitment to protect the population, the environment, and the security of the country, Goals that are mutually supportive. As the secretary outlined in his direction to the, to the Department of the Navy, the Department of Defense launched a thorough review of the facility's long-term future, work that was grounded in analysis and completely aligned with our focus. So a few points on today's decision. First, national security. We will defuel Red Hill and reposition the fuel to land and afloat locations. Uh, this will meet our national security objectives by better positioning the United States to meet future challenges in the Pacific region while ensuring environmental stewardship and protecting the population. Secondly, as the Secretary noted, we're going to be able to take care of our people and the community. We are committed to mitigating the impacts of the November incident, uh, and we are restoring safe drinking water to all affected residents and providing best-in-class sampling and testing to ensure the continued safety of the drinking water. And finally, Uh, We're going to complete environmental mitigation efforts for the Red Hill drinking water well and any other impacted areas uh, and continue to engage the community on land use. Uh, One additional note, which I believe many of you are tracking, the commander U.S. Pacific Fleet has directed a command investigation into the releases and contamination of the water supply. When that review is complete, the Navy will publicly release the report and continue to work closely with the Department of Health in Hawaii uh, about pursuing follow-on actions. That work continues. I want to end by noting that the Secretary's decision is not considered by the Department to be some sort of quick fix. We have work to do. We know that across the enterprise with elected officials from Hawaii and local organizations and, of course, with our military families. Uh, many of whom have suffered as a result of that leak and that contamination. We're going to stay transparent, as fully transparent on this work as we can. We're going to continue to update you and them as actions are taken. Uh, But we do believe that this decision by the Secretary today marks a significant uh, first step uh, in the path forward. Boy, a lot to unpack in that statement, and we will be doing that over time. But because this was a Pentagon briefing in Washington, the event then immediately turned to questions from reporters, most of which, not surprisingly, had to do with Ukraine and Russia. Uh, There was a question later in the briefing about how much the decommissioning of Red Hill would cost. Uh, Spokesman John Kirby said he had no estimates on that, but he did go through a bit of a timeline on process, on some logistics. So right now, the assessment team that's been looking at Red Hill will focus on what needs to be done to defuel it. Uh, He estimates that process is going to take until the end of next month, the end of April. Then comes the prepping of the site for the defueling itself. Now, from previous studies, the Pentagon's estimated that's going to take about a year to defuel and close the Red Hill facility. Then come consultations about land use. Boy, that's a big open area, as well as uh, what the Pentagon and other policymakers will call environmental mitigation, you know, cleaning up uh, and and everything that that implies. Now, Kirby was asked whether the Defense Department would pay for that environmental mitigation. 
He said that, yes, his exact words on this were eventually that falls to DOD, the Department of Defense. Um, As you know, Red Hill's not been in use since December, but with today's announcement, there is now certainty that that's not going to be coming back at all. But both Hawaii senators uh, out this morning with uh, statements of support on that uh, already. Um, Senator Schott saying, make no mistake, uh, Red Hill will be uh, shut down. Uh, and uh, Maisie Hirono uh, talking about the uh, the efforts to along the way to achieve this and saying, I share the community's big sigh of relief with this news. Yeah, and the governor's got a statement out. Uh, I called over to the Board of Water Supply, you know, to get reaction there, reached out to the uh, Sierra, Sierra Club, you know, those two entities early on calling for the shutdown uh, just because they were just so uneasy about the condition of those tanks and whether they could be maintained. Interesting also that within that statement, the reference to transparency, this is what we're going to have to keep an eye on in terms of what the military. Kirby was asked, uh, again, in terms of uh, what happens with uh, with the families, impact of families. He said that's foremost on everyone's mind. But he also said, I don't want to speak for the Navy. So clearly this decision came from Austin. Shut it down. This is done in terms of executing from here on out. That's going to be something to see how this is is done, and it's going to be taking time and uh, and oversight from Congress, from EPA, and uh, from folks here in Hawaii as well. Yeah, major turning point uh, in this long, long saga of Red Hill. Sure has uh, been. And uh, yeah, it, it it it's not going to be uh, it's not going to be easy going ahead, and we have to hope that there are no other spills <laughs> and our water stays clean. But thanks so much, Bill. You bet. We have been talking to uh, HPR News Director Bill Dorman about the decision to shut down the military's Red Hill Underground tank facility that was just announced this morning. This is a conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. In today's Backyard Quiz, we're thinking about a Hawaii organization that is dedicated to the cause of peace. It's a reflection of the life's work of one of Hawaii's most beloved public figures, and it's built on his hope that, quote, every student enrolled in Hawaii's public university system will be exposed to peace studies. Its goals include the education and training of professional and future leaders in applied peacemaking and conflict resolution and engaging students through scholarship and practice in addressing contemporary problems within Hawaii, the Asia-Pacific region, the U.S., and the world. Students are encouraged to use Hawaii's strategic Pacific location to, in the language of its website, bring people together in an intellectually safe space for an exchange of diverse perspectives and ideas. This morning, we are looking for the name of this Hawaii organization that promotes peace. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to strengthening family relationships, such as parents and children together. NareedHawaii.com.
The federal government is requiring states to expand wastewater surveillance even as COVID-19 cases are on the wane. The city had tried early on in the pandemic to gather data that would be useful in detecting cases to step up efforts to limit the spread of the coronavirus. But it had limited success in getting specific numbers across Oahu zip codes due to the Department of Health's uh, patient privacy concerns. But there is renewed interest in research thanks to the Centers for Disease Control. We talked to uh, Priscilla Seaborn, who is with the Department of Health's Diagnostic Lab laboratories, and Doris D., a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Hawaii, about how they have been ramping up to expand wastewater surveillance. Really what I've been helping with in the last six months to eight months has been getting all the different equipment necessary for um, getting the infrastructure set up, set up uh, for Hawaii State Laboratory Division. And in that, it's also been setting up collaborations with the city and county um, as well as Dr. Talian's lab to um, get wastewater samples that are up and coming into Hawaii. Logistically, how difficult is this? So for the state lab, and, you know, I can let Doris speak to which the challenges that they face, but for us, the big issue has been the supply chain and getting the instrumentation that we need to Hawaii to perform these tests in the state lab. So for a lot of my work in the last six months has been very administrative. So it's been, you know, getting the different instruments needed to process these samples in the lab. Another uh, roadblock that I faced was also getting the collaborations with all the different wastewater partners. So all the different wastewater facilities on the different islands, that's been another challenge. So that's something that's been difficult for at least our aspect. But you know, really in the last month, we've made some pretty strong gains. We actually had the instrumentation now needed to go ahead and process water samples. And we also have those collaborations set up. So we are currently optimizing our protocols to then start gathering data on wastewater. And for us, you know, for the Hawaii State Laboratory Division, obviously COVID is something that we want to look at, but there's so much power in wastewater Beyond COVID, you can look at also different patterns of enteric virus outbreaks, such as like norovirus. You can look at opioid usage. Um, Wastewater is a very powerful indicator. And so that's something that we're pursuing as well. So how do these studies work, you know, as we are in this kind of late stage of COVID and the variants? How is this going to be useful in dealing with COVID-19? So one of the powerful things about wastewater is that you actually have viral shedding in the stool prior to the rise in clinical cases. And so one really great powerful tool that wastewater can help us with COVID-19, even in an era now where we're seeing, you know, a decline in cases, is that when we start seeing an increase in the presence of SARS-CoV-2 in wastewater, this kind of gives a sign that there's going to be an increase in clinical samples four days prior. So it it can be really used as a tool to understand the patterns of SARS-CoV-2 transmission in a population. Now, this is community. This is going to be helpful for the community. One thing that we are currently trying to also do is partner with Dr. Tao Yan's lab to get a little bit more fine-scale resolution. So, you know, Doris, maybe you can speak to some of the benefits of gathering wastewater from a specific facility, because that allows you then to kind of really fine point where you're seeing an increase in COVID-19 in a specific institution. It is an early indicator that the number of people with COVID-19 in a community, whether it is increasing or decreasing. So from our first study, like uh, when we first tested the wastewater from the city, we found that during the lockdown period, when the number of people infected with COVID-19 decreased in the community, the number of SARS-CoV-2 also significantly decreased in the wastewater. So which means uh, it is significantly correlated with each other. Yes, and on that note, that's where wastewater can be such a powerful tool to, one, talk about the patterns in community transmission, so looking at Hawaii, the different islands in general, But then you can use also tools to identify, you know, dive in a little bit deeper, look at where this potential um, outbreak could be happening. Well, early on, we saw that there were universities that were using it, you know, checking, you know, dormitories, that kind of thing, you know, towers. How are we, how is that working out over at the University of Hawaii? Is it just happening at Manoa or are we we doing it system-wide, Doris? We we only did it in Manoa. So because our lab 
is in Manoa. So we started in the Manoa dormitory during the lockdown. So there was only uh, a limited of num- number of students present at, in the campus. So the school arranged them to stay in the same building. So it allows us to collect the wastewater from the same building, like we we collect every three days because we need some time for a student infected with COVID-19. They will have probably three to five days to develop symptoms. And then that's the point that they started shedding the virus into the wastewater, even without any symptoms. So we can detect it earlier and notify the school and they will uh, do the testing of the students and then start to, to do the isolating quarantine and then separating the students and uh, send them to other buildings, you know. Well, have we been su- successful in doing that? Yes, we we did for one semester. And then after that, I'm not sure about the project, what's going on with the project. So we stopped doing that. So it's on pause? Yes, it's on pause. But we are going to start soon because now all the students are coming back into the campus and we are preparing, we are getting more uh, equipment and then we are preparing to start the project again soon. And on that note, one thing that is difficult is, you know, obviously we saw this huge rise in cases in, you know, late December, early January and into February. Uh Um, One thing that's difficult is that once you start having that rampant community transmission of covid wastewater data at that point does not become that informative, right? Like you're going to find it in the water, you're going to find it in high abundance. And so I think the really powerful tool that wastewater is, is looking at over time the rise and falls of, you know, SARS-CoV-2 or whatever pathogen you're looking at in particular. Um, And so that's where, you know, it's really important to, you know, get that infrastructure set up, um, and and when the data can be useful to actually saying like, hey, you know, we're seeing a rise in COVID-19 cases, we need to maybe start enacting some disease mitigating strategies. And so might kind of help answer that question as to maybe why the project was paused. Can you be specific as to, you know, where you were able to track COVID in one of the dorms? We only set up the sampling in two dormitories. One is a Freya Hall, one is a Hale Aloha. And because more students are staying in the Freya Hall, so we did have a few detections over time in the Freya Hall. And the the students were successfully uh, isolated, I believe, yes. Okay, so that's one small piece of it. But then uh, I guess broadly, statewide, how have we been able to use this, Priscilla? As far as the Hawaii State Laboratory Division, you know, as I said, wastewater for us is still kind of in its infancy. infancy. We, in the last month, have gained major ground. So we, right now, we currently partnered with the National Wastewater Surveillance System. And this is a program sponsored through the Centers for Disease Control. So my responsibility was I was able to enroll 12 wastewater facilities on Kauai, Oahu, and Big Island. Unfortunately, I was not able to get any on Maui for now, but, uh, you know, it's still something that we're currently enrolling programs in. And so um, I, one of my goals is to also get representation on that island and some of the other ones as well. Now, in that, they are partnered with a contractor that will allow us to kind of enhance our wastewater surveillance system. So these facilities are sending influent wastewater samples to a contractor that is looking at the presence of SARS-CoV-2, looking at the abundance in those wastewater samples, and they are also looking for different variants. So they're looking for Omicron, um, as well as any remaining Delta that might be left over in the population. And so that's currently where we're at right now. And as I said, really in the last month, I've gathered the instruments needed to start processing these samples in the Hawaii State Laboratory Division. So in the next month or so, it's going to be focused on optimizing our protocols, getting everything good together, um, and then we ourselves, Hawaii, is going to start processing these samples at the state lab. Okay, and so then the UH piece, it's going to be just limited to those two dorms, as far as you know, Doris? We are actually developing um, methods to detect variants in the wastewater right now. So because variants are hard to detect if you just uh, use the normal QPCR assay, so we need to actually do the sequencing of the RNA of that virus. 
So one of the uh, good points of wastewater surveillance is we can gather uh, a whole bunch of RNA from the community, and then we can do the uh, variance detection using the method that we, we are developing now. We are developing an empty consequencing method where we can massively sequence a lot of samples at one time and then get multiple reads, and then we can find out in the community over time what are the changes of the variants in the community. For example, if Omicron is uh, entering Oahu and then uh, spreading in a specific community, we will be able to know from the wastewater because we did uh, we are doing the sequencing method. And this method is, the objective of this method is to detect the diversity of the variants in a faster and more accurate way. That was University of Hawaii researcher Doris D. and Priscilla Seaburn of the State Health Department Diagnostic Laboratories Division. They were talking to us about how they are starting a new limited phase of wastewater surveillance across various counties uh, across the state. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Aloha Care, a Hawaii health plan specializing in Medicaid health insurance, committed to the health of Hawaii's communities. AlohaCare.org. Do you find HPR's on air campaigns exciting? Would you excel at organizing events to engage our community? Are you someone with excellent interpersonal communication skills and a public radio nerd? HPR has position openings for on-air campaign and event producer and membership coordinator. Details on the Employment Opportunities page at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Symphony Orchestra's Hapa Symphony Series, with selections from the Hawaii Calls radio program curated by Aaron J. Sala, March 18th at Hawaii Theater, myhso.org. You know, this week marks a year since the Kaupakalua Dam on Maui overflowed. That event triggered memories of March of 2006 when the Koloko Dam on Kauai breached, flooding a neighborhood, killing seven people. And that prompted a statewide survey of all of our dams and reservoirs. So how are we doing on getting to those repairs? HPR's Casey Harlow joins us this morning. Hi. Morning, yes. Uh, So uh, the state lawmakers are considering a measure at the... Uh, in the Senate right now, and it's moving forward past second reading last week, moving on uh, for a third reading sometime maybe this week, uh, yet to be scheduled. But SB 3225 basically uh, allows giving, uh, creating a loan or grant program, as well as tax credits uh, for private landowners uh, who may have ha- may have a plantation era dam or reservoir on their property. And uh, I spoke with Edwin Matsuda, who's the DLNR's Dam and Reservoir Safety uh, Program, and he kind of alluded and kind of said that these have been uh, around since like the early 1900s, and so these are aging dams and structures, and a lot of them have uh, deferred maintenance on it, uh, mainly because private landowners, uh, some private landowners can't afford it because it costs millions of dollars to keep them up or for repairs. And so uh, the Kaupakalua Dam uh, in Maui, uh, which is was um, decommissioned or has been a kind of, I guess, sorry, uh, has been uh, put out of service, has been shut down uh, starting last year. There's still 100, more than 120 uh, dams or reservoirs in uh, Hawaii as we speak. And so this is Edwin Matsuda who uh, has speaking to the condition of these dams. A number of these structures have had deferred maintenance. So their condition has faded from, you know, being in operational, feral condition to 
needing more maintenance and repairs and the condition has actually faded for some of these other structures to where they're in poor condition. And he estimates like roughly 70 to 80% of these structures are in uh, poor condition. And uh, he says, you know, as far as these dams and reservoirs go, uh, their original purpose and intent uh, is long gone uh, since the last uh, sugar plantation on Maui closed uh, a few years ago. And so, but they still provide a community benefit and also provide uh, benefits for residences. They do provide some level of flood control protection. They do take a lot of these, because the reservoirs themselves are able to store water, they can actually take off some of the peaks and some of the storm events and do provide in some neighborhoods viable flood mitigation benefits. There's also water recharge for our aquifer systems. There are other benefits for alternative energy sources that these reservoirs can provide as far as um, hydro production. And so, yeah, again, state lawmakers are considering this one bill, SB 3225, uh, establishing this uh, grant loan program for, and they're still trying to figure out who uh, exactly qualifies for it. Uh, Last week, they uh, settled how much money uh, they will possibly allocate towards this program to starting up the administration, not only that, but also um, the uh, ongoing, you know, uh, allowance every year that this program would have. Yeah, so they're really trying to just create incentives to get people to, uh, you know, find ways to to make the fixes if they can. Yeah, exactly, because these dams uh, and reservoirs are uh, in places that you may not know or you have been not necessarily forgotten, but you may not know that you live downstream of uh, one of these dams or reservoirs. Uh, and also, there there's a lot to say about, you know, the ongoing challenges uh, with heavy rain events and extreme weather events due to climate change like we have seen uh, last year. Uh, and the DLNR is working on this. Uh, they are uh, updating their standards uh, as far as what they call a max probable flood or rain event. And this is something that they... Uh, take into uh, consideration as far as projections and also past history. Uh, Matsuda says that uh, they uh, the last time this was updated was uh, a few decades ago, right around the 1960s. And so they're, it's in dire need of like an update. And so this is what he said as far as, um, you know, the main concerns with these dams as we go forward. Almost 100% of our structures here that we see in the States are earthen dams, meaning they're built out of dirt. And so the number one failure mechanism that we're worried for and want to watch out for is overtopping events, where the spillway is not adequate enough to safely divert flood waters from overtopping the dam. Yeah, we're, we're hoping that, you know, when we, when we do analyze these structures for the problematic flood, that we do mitigate that risk as best as we can. And so uh, a draft of this uh, study or the standards, he anticipates it'll be released later this year. Uh, They will also be uh, analyzing the current inventory of dams and reservoirs as well within state to see, like, exactly what uh, the capability or what – how they can stand up to these uh, updated standards now. Yeah, because we need to know about these high-hazard dams. Exactly. If you live downstream, it's not a good thing. Exactly. (laughs) Thanks so much, Casey. Thank you. We have been talking to HBR's Casey Harlow about the latest efforts to deal with our aging dams and reservoirs. You can find his stories online at hawaiipublicradio.org. Civil Beats Reality Check today looks at the price of owning a car in Hawaii. Reporter Stuart Yerton on hand this morning. Hi, Stuart. Hi, Catherine. Yes, sticker shock. (laughs) (laughs) You you don't really know how much you're paying until you uh, really stop and think. It's quite a bit. Yes, it's quite a bit. And again, you know, we're looking at uh, generally the cost of living here in Hawaii. Transportation for families is one of the biggest costs. And uh, when you look at what's available, uh, we're not at a point yet where people, 
a lot of people can totally rely on public transportation or other things like bikes or walking. So a lot of people have to have a car and it's very expensive, not just for gas, but the registration fees as well. And your research found that uh, it's actually higher than a lot of West Coast cities. Yeah. So in in Hawaii, we have two layers of uh, registration expenses, um, including two layers of w- essentially a weight tax on the state and county level. And when you add all that up, uh, Hawaii, or and we looked at Honolulu or Oahu in gen- uh, specifically, you know, it's it's a it's maybe depending on the vehicle three times what it would be in a city like Los Angeles or Portland. And you point to a study by uh, Uluponu, uh, the initiative about kind of how much it actually costs every year or every month. Yes. I mean, and and again, we're talking about, you know, hundreds of dollars a month to um, own a car. Um, and, and again, it, it depends on the study. Uh, I, we did our own and we came up with somewhere in the neighborhood of, say, $500 a month. We, we tried to, we looked specifically at uh, the most popular vehicle um, in Hawaii, which is the Toyota Tacoma uh, pickup. But, you know, so we came to, our conclusion was about 566 a month to operate that car, including gasoline and uh, registration fees. Um, Ulupono's prediction or estimate was significantly higher than that. Uh, The state of Hawaii has looked at the same thing to try to figure out, well, how much money do people need to survive? Um, the, The state's is somewhat lower. Um, according to the state, a family of four can get by with uh, spending just $260 a month for transportation, but that would include you know, maybe one car or even less than one car um, in using public transportation. So, again, the estimates vary, but the one thing that is clear is that uh, our registration fees, if you do own a car, uh, they tend to be pretty high here. And you point out that you know it's because we do it by weight, right? And at first you think, okay, well, that makes sense if you have a big car, a big heavy car, that it's going to, you know, wear, the wear and tear on the road is a lot more intense than if you have a, you know, a smart car or something like that. Right. And, but the argument that people make on the other side is that, um, and maybe a smart car is, the, the little tiny car is, is an exception, but generally that if you're talking about some kind of vehicle with four wheels, uh, weighing um, quite a bit, that the proportional difference in the wear and tear between, say, uh, a car, a decent-sized you know, family sedan, and a small pickup isn't that great. It, it's not as great as, say, the difference between either one of those vehicles and, say, a truck, like a delivery truck or a truck carrying a shipping container. So that's the argument um, against uh, the weight tax, again, that it just is not proportional to the wear and tear that the vehicles actually do to the street. And if you have farther to drive, you know, that obviously adds up with gas. It's an additional cost. Yes. We have one of the highest gas prices in, in the country here. It's it's way above the national average. So, again, this this all adds up to people. And, again, we're not there yet with a lot of public transportation, namely on Oahu, the rail uh, which is supposed to be reducing things and making it easier for people, it, it's just not there yet, the alternatives. And so uh, really when you do the weight uh, configuration, that it, it it really hurts the people who can least afford it. Right, because again, if, if you have a very expensive car, um, you could end up paying less than somebody who has an old clunker truck uh, that weighs more. Yeah. All right. Well, it certainly was an eye opener. Uh, makes you think about your next car <laughs> and what you want to pay. <laughs> but thanks so much, exactly. Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. We have been talking to Stuart Yurton with today's reality check. You can read his story at civilbeat.org.
This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence to talk about the aftermath of space junk hitting the far side of the moon. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time. Our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet. Also things we can try and spot in our dark island skies. As usual, turning to the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips. We've got him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do we have in store this week? Hey, Dave, it's good to be back. So this week, stargazers, look out for the planet Venus in the eastern sky before sunrise. It will be very bright and easy to spot. The moon this week is passing through its first quarter phase and will become an increasingly bright presence in our sky till week's end. And speaking of the moon, you've got an update on that piece of a rocket that touched down on the moon's surface. Yeah, well, impacted more like it. <laughs> Last Friday saw an unusually dramatic event in the lifetime of the moon when a three-ton discarded rocket stage impacted on the lunar surface. This dramatic event was unfortunately not captured by ground or space-based telescopes since it occurred on the far side of the lunar surface. However, the aftermath of the impact may be visible in a form of a small plume of ejecta thrown up into low lunar orbit. And wasn't there some sort of debate about where this thing came from? There was indeed. This particular piece of rocket was first thought to belong to Elon Musk's SpaceX company, Mm. but further observations of this piece of space junk revealed it to actually be from the Chinese space program. Of course, China denies this. (laughs) And what makes him think it was uh, Chinese space junk? Well, the sightings of this rocket stage coincided with a recent Chinese lunar probe launch. And observations from several amateur astronomers here on Earth helped confirm this theory. Space junk, ever-increasing problem these days, huh? Indeed. And it's possible that incidents such as these will increase as more objects are launched into space. Right now, the risk to human spaceflight has been minimal, with only the International Space Station being under any real threat. However, as space tourism lifts off and more humans find themselves in Earth orbit, it's only a matter of time before catastrophe strikes. Well, let's hope that's not in a future report, and that'll be something that uh, we can avoid. But appreciate the update. Christopher Phillips, thank you so much. You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. You can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. In today's Backyard Quiz, we were looking for the name of an institution described as a multidisciplinary community of scholars, students, and practitioners who, through academic programs and outreach, promote cross-cultural understanding and collaborative problem-solving. It's housed within the University of Hawaii at Manoa's Public Policy Center and emphasizes critical thinking and collaboration to groom leaders to address contemporary and complex issues in Hawaii, the Asia-Pacific region, and the world. The organization honors the memory of a former Democratic U.S. Senator from Hawaii, Masayuki Spark Matsunaga, who served from 1977 until his death in 1990. He was a World War II veteran who was twice wounded in battle while serving with the 442nd Regimental Combat Team and the 100th Infantry Battalion. Matsunaga helped create the Commission on Wartime Relocation and Internment of Civilians in 1980, and his dream of world peace is carried on by the Matsunaga Institute for Peace and Conflict Resolution, which was the answer to today's backyard quiz. And our winner today, Cora from Liliha, uh, she shared with us that she used to work with Sparky Matsunaga in Washington, D.C. If you have an idea for a quiz, please send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Manoa Valley Theater, presenting the comedy The 39 Steps, a mix-up of Alfred Hitchcock's movie, a spy novel, and a dash of Monty Python. Opens March 17th. Tickets at manoavalleytheater.com. Do you ever wake up in the morning feeling fully refreshed, or are you still a little tired? Has anybody ever told you that you snore? Do you ever wake yourself up coughing or gasping for air? If so... 
you might have sleep apnea, and this can be very dangerous if not treated. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with an expert about getting good sleep. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hemic, specializing in workers' compensation, caring for over 6,500 businesses and 75,000 workers in Hawaii. Learn more at hemic.com. Regarded as one of the best artists of his era, Italian Renaissance painter and sculptor Michelangelo created 182 works of art during his lifetime. Pretty impressive, but there's another Michelangelo giving him a run for his money. Eight-year-old artist Milo was born in Hawaii and now lives in Thailand with his parents, Daisy and Ajax. And during the pandemic, his parents challenged him to do one drawing a day. Now he's making his art pieces available as non-fungible tokens, or NFTs. The conversation Savannah Harriman-Potes spoke with Milo and his mom, Daisy, about his latest venture into digital art and how art can help us to talk about difficult things. Here's Milo. My full name is Michelangelo Rizal Maharlika, but if you have a problem pronouncing my name, it's Milo or Milo. (laughs) And Milo, are you named after the famous artist Michelangelo? Is that your namesake? Yeah, and but if you if you can't remember that, you can also remember it like the Ninja Turtle. <laughs> Perfect. And is is your namesake one of the things that got you inspired to start in art? Yeah, I I love art, so I yeah the Michelangelo name helped me be inspired by all the art. Yeah, he's he's loved um, being creative his entire life. He's always loved to draw and paint and make a mess doing art things. <laughs> I like uh, John michelle Basquiat, Keith Haring, Frida Kahlo, Pablo Picasso, and many more. And I noticed <laughs> that all of those artists that you just mentioned are portraits that you've done in the form of NFTs. Yeah, so the, the way I do it, it's actually chibi. So chibi, it means like anime characters. I So I used to... I actually still do one chibi per day. And then by the 200th day or so, I started doing like, I could like look at people and then make them as chibi. Yeah. So his, And then we minted them as NFTs. His dad actually gave him this um, challenge during the pandemic because we had all this extra time, right? And we wanted him to kind of not have so much screen time and whatnot. So we asked, oh, you know, maybe you can do a drawing a day. And he's like, oh, can I do chibi? Because he loves to draw chibi. So he's now on like, I think he's almost at day 300, right? Of drawing yeah, a chibi yeah. character every day. So yeah, like he said, after so many days, he he can just basically look at somebody or look at a, a picture of somebody and, and turn them into a chibi character, which is, that's that was his idea for how he was making his collections for his NFT projects. And the chibi, as you said, they're these little cartoon characters almost and then yes. you have different backgrounds for your portraits what do you use to make them what kind of medium do you use so I just use pencil at first then um it, I think it finishes on sketchpad pro yeah so we digitize it he he scans it into sketchpad pro and then we add the um the extra effects and whatnot on that but um it's kind of fun too because he when he creates his characters, we look at real photos of the actual artists and like different photos that they've had in the past. And we, you know, he creates them based on like real outfits and whatnot that they wore. So you can kind of look at a real photo of them and then see his chibi and see how it translated using that. So, and Milo, can you give me your definition of an NFT? I think it means like, yeah, it's like technically digital art and I like doing that because if it's just like physical, like you do physical art, other people can't really see it. But if you do digital art, NFTs, it helps show your art around the world and inspire people to follow your lead when you do art. All the artists that you've chosen to do your chibis of and that you have made into NFTs, Frida Kahlo, Keith Haring, Salvador Dali, 
none of them had the opportunity to make NFTs. What do you think they would think about this new form of art? If I think they were alive, I just hope they'd be inspired right now by all my art that I've done. And if they were, I'd make so many art pieces by now. (laughs) I'd, I'd probably make like... Michelangelo, Vincent Van Gogh, um, Will Smith, Eminem, <laughs> Logic, <coughs> Tupac Shakur. In one day, I'll do like five chibi per day if they were alive, man. I, I swear <laughs> to God. Is there is there one particular question you would want to ask? If you could ask one artist one question about their work, what artist would you want it to be and what would your question be? The artists I'd ask would be Michelangelo, and I'd ask him, how did you paint the 16th chapel in one, in a couple of days? I even forgot. It was years, Milo. A a couple of years. (laughs) It's just beautiful. But how did you get it done? How did you get all of that done? Yeah, how did you get it all done by yourself? (laughs) Would you ever want to do something that big, you know, Michelangelo did the Sistine Chapel and Keith Haring, another uh, artist you've done portraits of, did big, big mural projects. Would you ever want to work on that scale? I would actually, yeah, I'd try to like, but when I'm older, it'd be easier for me because I have more experience as a painter and a drawer, so it will be easier. And your mom mentioned that you have made over 300 of these portraits that you've made into NFTs as a project that started during the pandemic. Is this something you wanna keep going with? Or are you looking for a new creative inspiration? Yeah, I actually wanna try and continue growing in that space because I like doing NFTs and others. And I also like posting my acrylic paintings in on OpenSea because it's not just chibi style all day long, but it's also paintings. Because mm-hmm. I did so many paintings when the pandemic started. I started ever since like two years ago. So I've done like, I don't know, like 50, uh, more than 100 paintings probably. I don't yeah. know. He actually started, we had him started just learning about artists and, and trying to imitate or not really imitate, but, you know, like do kind of like dedication pieces to them. And then we started posting them just on Instagram and our friends and family would ask like, oh, can Milo paint something for me? So after maybe a few months, he started doing commissions, like where people were asking, oh, can you do this? And can you do that? So NFTs just basically became this another level for that, you know, like, so turning turning his art into something that could really be shared with the world. And we still continue to, you know, he has art classes and um, we paint almost maybe three times a week. So he has tons of this work, right? So, and we still experiment with different things like yesterday. What did we do yesterday? Milo, what did we use? The... Oh, we, we, um, we did a um, resistance painting, yeah. but it didn't really work. <laughs> Well, we did, it's like using oil pastels with watercolors, so it changes the effect of it. So he, he's still trying to learn different styles also just to basically have more experience and learn different ways of, of um, creating art. We're, we're actually um, making a Salvador, Salvador Dali painting, but using black oil pastels. When you think about the art that you do every day, is this something you want to do for the rest of your life? Yes, because I want people to be inspired by me. And then later when I pass away, I want them to remember my art and I want my art to be all around the world and be like, like Salvador Dali, uh, Michel Basca, all, all of these artists that are, that are, that passed away, but they're still alive with their art. And I, and I want a continuation through my art and want others to continue my legacy. Wow. Wow. Well, this is one of the most productive and positive uses of the (laughs) pandemic that I have come across, and I'm very impressed. How has the pandemic been for you otherwise? How have the last two years been for you? It's actually been scary. When I first started, when the pandemic first started, I forgot, I think it was like six or seven years old. I was actually scared because there are like so people, so many people we know were getting covid and then I didn't want to be the next one to get COVID. And I actually, at 
some points I started getting sick, but I kept on f- fighting and then I'm I'm ending up here on a radio. <laughs> so so I, I can't believe at eight years old, a kid artist is at the radio. Does art make you feel better? Does it help you with any negative emotions or fears you might have? Yes, because like I keep saying, art can make you can change how people feel like it it can make you feel sad or you know it's like speech right like it can either bring people up or tear everything apart so you have to be careful of the choice of your painting and then share your emotions and put it on a paper We've been listening to eight-year-old Michelangelo Rizal Maharlika, known as Milo, and his mom, Daisy. You can find Milo's work available as NFTs online on the OpenSea platform. Proceeds from Milo's NFTs will go to the charity Aim for the Heart, which works to promote emotional literacy among kids through art. And Daisy says Milo's also saving up for a new Nintendo Switch. That's it. We're pal for the day. Tomorrow we learn about the first woman to practice Western medicine in the islands. Miss something and you want to listen back to something you heard today? All of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. <laughs>